Am I switched on? I am. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. Oh, I'm really switched on. <laughs> I expect you realise that when an Anna Chaplin is asked to be a speaker, she invariably includes something about dementia. And as today is Dementia Action Day, you won't be surprised that I am going to include something about dementia tonight. But before I begin, I've got another little job to do. I'm also a bookseller tonight. <laughs> you may remember that I've been the secretary of an online dementia group um, oh, for about 18 months now. And the leader of the group, Robin Thompson, recently had this book published. And it's called Living with Alzheimer's, A Love Story. And it's an honest and poignant account of how he and his late wife coped with her dementia. And I have copies for sale tonight at a bargain price of £6 each. I can get more if they all go, but if they don't go, I can take them away too. There's no problem. But if you would like to come and see me after the service, or just have a look at them, if they're worth a little browse. Okay. So, sales pitch over. <laughs> On my theology course last year, we were challenged to think of an Old Testament character whose experience of God could be related to something in our own situation, our own life. And I chose Hagar, a hopeless, marginalized, unnoticed slave who met God and discovered that God sees her and knows her. And as my own situation is being an Anna Chaplin, caring for those with dementia at Mill House, Hagar's story led me to reflect on how God sees and knows all those who are feeling hopeless or isolated, and how that especially can apply if you're living with dementia. Hagar was a slave to Sarai, the wife, of, the wife of Abram. And in the account we're going to look at in a minute in Genesis 16, this was before God had made his covenant with Abram, where he changed Abram's name to Abraham. And he changed Sarai's name to Sarah. Abram meaning exalted father, and Abraham meaning father of many. Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. And I'm told that the change in spelling may reflect the difference in dialect between Ur and Canaan. There are two parts to Hagar's story. One is in Genesis 16 and the other in Genesis 21. In both stories, she travels through the wilderness. In the first instance, because she runs away, and in the second, because she's banished. And on both occasions, she meets with God. And so this evening, we're going to concentrate on that first meeting with God in Genesis chapter 16. And I've asked David if he would come and read it to us tonight. I thought it would be appropriate to ask David because he is one of my wonderful team of Anna friends that come and help lead worship in Millhouse with me. And uh, so I've asked, I thought you'd like to hear a different voice as well. They might have heard too much of me already today. 
So we're looking at Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. When Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering, I put my servant in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Laharoi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him. Ishmael. Thank you. Thanks, David. <clears throat> well, I'd like to just unpack that story a little bit. It starts by introducing the two women around Abram. Sarai, Hebrew, married, rich, and free, but old and barren. And Hagar, Egyptian, single, poor, bonded, but young and fertile. Hagar could legally be a surrogate and be disposed of once she had borne the child. Hagar is treated as a nobody. She's never addressed by name. She's never spoken to, except to be given orders. 
Sarai exercises her power over Hagar, enforcing her to conceive with her husband. And it's been suggested that Abraham became affectionate towards Hagar because of their bond over this unborn child. In addition, it seems Hagar behaved insensitively to Sarai, who had no doubt been tormented by her barrenness and may now perceive a threat to her marriage. Sarai speaks angrily to Abram, blaming him for the outcome of her plan. Like many marriages, isn't it? And Sarai begins to be really cruel to Hagar. So for the first time, Hagar takes control of her own life and she flees into the wilderness away from Sarai and Abram. And when she reaches a spring on the way to Shur, she's almost at the border, almost into Egypt, almost home, when she's visited and addressed by God's messenger, the first person in scripture to have such a conversation. It must have been exceptional, mustn't it, to suddenly hear the angel of the Lord <coughs> addressing her in the wilderness by her name. No one ever called her by her name. She was just the slave or the servant. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And again, can you imagine, it must have been so strange to have a personal question. She was used to just obeying instructions. So she explains her predicament. She's running from abuse and she's wandering in the wilderness, trying to find her way back to Shur. Now the angel's response does sound rather harsh. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. But God realizes that this young, pregnant girl will never survive a journey through the wilderness, succumbing to the elements and the wild animals. He values her and he values the child that she's carrying. And in the midst of her hopelessness, God sees Hagar. He tells her to return to Abram and Sarai's household, but he does make her a promise. He will increase her descendants so they will be too numerous to count. The meaning is clear. She will live to see the birth of her child and she will reap a blessed future where she will become a great matriarch. At this point, Hagar enters a relationship with God that reshapes her identity and her perspective of her circumstances. She is no longer just a slave. She's an heir to the promise of God. She has discovered that God sees and hears someone who is hopeless and is marginalized. And in this discovery, she becomes the first person in biblical history to actually give God a name. And she makes this amazing proclamation. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. And she calls him by a new name that's never been used before. El Roy, the God who sees. Now this may seem a bit strange to our Western ears because we usually refer to God as God, or Father, or Lord. However, the Hebrews had many names for God. And if I can make this work, you will see some of them. So, this is the first few. Elohim, God of power and might. Yahweh, the Lord, 
I am who I say I am. Abba, Father or Daddy, which Phil described to us so movingly last Sunday morning. El Elyon, God Most High. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner for protection and deliverance. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Hagar was simply expressing her own experience of this God. El Roy, the God who sees, or the God who sees me. But ultimately, of course, Hagar's story is more than that of a slave meeting God in the wilderness. It's a story of God's care for all those with no earthly hope, for all those who have been devalued or forgotten. Hagar's realization of the significance of God seeing us and knowing us by name is borne out in John 3. The sheep hear his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And in Isaiah, my favorite verse, see, I have written your name on the palm of my hand. This is a very specific and special attribute to give to God, namely that he numbers the hairs on our heads and he knows our circumstances, past, present, and future. But he not only sees those in positions of power, he sees the abused, he sees the destitute, he sees the marginalized. These include the refugees, the victims of abuse, anyone whose circumstances offer heartache or suffering. And of course, I'm going to suggest to you, especially it can be applied to those who are living with dementia. And so I'd like to leave Hagar now, and I'd like to explore how God still sees and knows people with dementia today. When I tell people that I'm an Anna Chaplin working in a dementia care home, I'm sometimes asked, how can they love God if they've forgotten who God is? And much of the church seems unaware that those living with dementia can still experience God through their emotions and through their feelings, despite their increasing lack of cognition. The last time I spoke up here was before lockdown. And you may remember that I told you about a lady in Millhouse. Her dementia was severe and she was very confused. But when I said to her, Joan, do you know how much God loves you? Her eyes lit up and she replied, oh yes, and I love him right back every day. And here she is. This is my Joan. As you can see, we were decorating mirrors. And after I had written at the top of her mirror, God loves you, she insisted on that we add on the bottom, I love God always in my heart. And she was so pleased with this mirror. When I visited her the next week, 
she'd completely forgotten all about the mirror. But when I prayed with her, she repeated the words again, I love God always in my heart. And she had such a wonderful smile on her face. And I'd like to show you another resident. This lady, usually very withdrawn, usually quite silent, but when we were worshipping at Christmas, she suddenly started to join in and sing the carol. And she had this wonderful look on her face, which you can see. All this leads me to wonder, do you think we should rethink the perception that we have to have full mental capacity to know and to appreciate God? It is true that the great Protestant reformer Calvin did seem to have a cognitive view of our knowledge of God because he wrote, nearly all the wisdom we possess, true and sound, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. However, by contrast, two centuries later, Rousseau was arguing that feelings are more important than reason thought. And this is what he said. The final certainty of the truths of faith are found in the witness of feeling that is deeper and much more reliable than the reasoning mind. And this again leads me to question whether the roots of understanding about the importance of feelings might go back to the very beginnings of our faith in the Old Testament, where knowing God is fundamental, but whether knowing is more than intellectual. In Deuteronomy 6, the command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And it's not until the New Testament that the Gospel writers added, and with your mind. Jesus often referred to the disciples as his friends, implying emotions and relationship. I've been reading a lot lately by a lady called Christine Bryden. Christine has dementia. She's been living with it for a long time. And she is getting worse, but she is very unusually still able to write. And she believes that her experience of dementia is simply part of the diversity of God's creation. And that different, differing cognitive capacities within a church family are simply a reflection of the many facets of God's likeness. Shall I say that again? Because it's really quite un un a thing to say, isn't it? The differing cognitive capacities within a church family are simply a reflection of the many facets of God's likeness. Christine suggests that it's through the Holy Spirit's power that I'm in communion with God and that this overrides the necessity for cognition because it's a spiritual communion. And I think that's quite powerful because it's somebody living with dementia that's saying that herself. So if God knew us when we were still in the womb, Psalm 139, and has plans for us to prosper, Jeremiah, then surely neurological decline 
is not going to separate us from his love. In Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he uses the present tense. And in using the present tense, God is revealing he is ever-present and that he indeed values the present moment. And it strikes me that people living with dementia do this too. They gradually become less conscious of the past, not real, really thinking about the future. And as I've discovered at Millhouse with Joan and with other friends, they can find happiness in the present moment and they can experience God himself in the present moment. And I can see Brenda smiling with me. Another Anna Chaplin told me that she had been visiting an elderly man who was really poorly with his dementia. And she sat and watched as his wife gently put his slippers on for him. And she said to him, when were you at your happiest, John? And he smiled at her and he said, now. In Swinton's book, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, he says, there is much suffering and devastation and certainly things are changed. But human beings experiencing dementia <coughs> do not dissolve. They are held tightly in the memory of God himself. So perhaps the dread of forgetting can be overcome by God's promise of always remembering. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And indeed, even if we have forgotten, we still are ourselves when he remembers us. I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I think this is, could be the most profound truth of all for those living with dementia, that they are loved and wanted irrespective of their physical or psychological condition. I think when John wrote, God so loved the world, he meant everyone. God sees all of us as broken and in need of his love. How we are broken doesn't matter. And I'm not discounting the pain of losing memory. But as Swinton points out, if God is remembering us, we can be filled with hope. In Galatians 4, Paul stresses the importance of being known by God. Now, however, you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. So how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? Paul also visits this theme in his first letter to the Corinthians. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now I'm going to share a, a lovely little story with you. It's, it's on a slide, um, but I'm going to read it out for the sake of the recording so that um, people can hear it as well. An elderly man hurried to his 8 o'clock morning appointment with his doctor. He wanted to finish quickly so he would get to another appointment. The doctor asked what it was, and he proudly said that every morning at 9 o'clock at the hospital, he had breakfast with his wife. The doctor asked what her condition was, and he replied that for five years she'd had Alzheimer's and hasn't known who he is. 
The doctor asked why he continues if he has no idea who he is, and the old man replied, because I still know who she is. I love that illustration, that God, <coughs> it shows that it's not just God knowing who we are, but it can be reflected in human terms. We can do it for each other, can't we, as well. So now I move on to <coughs> my Christine Bryden again. This is what she says. Christian confessions and creeds start with the words, I believe, not I remember. Even though I may no longer remember God, I will trust him to hold me in his memory until that glorious day of resurrection when each facet of my personality will be expressed to the full. Though dementia may strip away mental capacities, it is a reminder of utter dependency on God himself. Reflecting that cognitive competence is not essential to encounter the grace of God led me to the writings of Henri Nouwen. I believe that his thoughts on those with special needs could so easily have been written about those living with dementia, and this is what he says. The people I live with may be stripped of many human skills, but in their poverty they're open to God. Their heart and by heart, I mean the center of their being, is so poor in a way that God can dwell there. This leads me to reflect to another saying, a famous one by Descartes. I think, therefore I am. I would suggest that we should change this for those living with dementia too. God sees me, therefore I am. Robin Thompson experienced this for himself when he cared for his late wife living with dementia and whose book I've already mentioned. When I asked him about this, he told me, God does not let us go. We are held in his memory and we exist even if we forget everything. Our self goes on living in relationship with others, but even more importantly, in our relationship with God. But of course, this applies to each one of us too. God sees anyone who is feeling helpless and isolated. When we suffer because of events beyond our control, God sees us and he knows us, and he walks with us on the road to recovery. When we experience setbacks, he sees us, and he knows us, and he holds us. This is a God that sees us in all the messiness of our life, whatever our situation, and regardless of the circumstances. This God is the same God who saw Hagar in her distress. Our God is a God who sees us and knows us. Amen. Amen. I'd like to just finish with a short prayer. And, of course, it is for those living with dementia. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you went out of your way to include those marginalized or isolated or on the edges of society.
We ask you to teach us to see the person living with dementia as you see them, a unique, valued, loved individual. Let us not write them off, but include them as part of our wide church family and assure them of our continuing love. I pray for anyone that we know battling with dementia, anyone in our family, anyone in our circle of friends and their carers. And in particular, of course, I pray a special blessing over Brenda and Edmund this evening. Save us, Lord, from leaving the care of those with dementia to the professionals and the clergy. Please teach us to be a dementia-friendly church and what that really means. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>